Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor, Tristan Free, and in this episode, supported by Brandtech Scientific, I will be speaking to a pioneer of organoid technology and a previous guest on the show to find out how the field has progressed in the two and a half years since we last spoke and to discover the growing list of applications that organoids are now being used for in the research lab. So for those who may be unfamiliar, organoids are 3D cultures, which is designed to mimic the tissue of an organ, complete with extracellular matrix and 3D cellular confirmation. Coming up on the podcast, the impact of organoid models in drug development. The development time for this drug, now it's in the clinical trial, was tremendously shorter and more accurate because of using organoid. How they are changing attitudes to animal models. The animal models, in a way, are not accurate. We, we have nothing else. And of course, that's why they're used. But everyone knows that they're not very good. We see this drive from industry to, to replace it as well. And I, I really see this collective effort from everyone talking to each other and seeing what can we do? How are we going to build this? And then to, to improve this over the last, over the next coming years. And in the crusade for perfect models, find out what our guest considers the Holy Grail. I think that the one thing that we really want to develop still is synthetic matrices. I would almost say almost a holy grail in the, in the field as far as I'm concerned. So joining me on the show is CEO of HUB Organoids, Rob Vries. Rob, it's great to have you on the podcast again. Very nice to speak to you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. But so when we did last speak back in the beginning of 2020, organoids were really beginning to take off as viable research tools. They were definitely cropping up in more and more papers. But then COVID-19 hit and sort of drove, drove everyone indoors and often away from the lab. Did you observe a slowing in both sort of the development of organoids at that time and then also their uptake into labs in that period? Yeah, indeed. So, so the, the, the COVID period, I guess, had a big impact on, on almost everything uh, that we did. And I do think it is real in a bit slower uptake in the sense that whereas we as a company for services were still open. So industry was working with us to use technology, but most of the labs themselves were closed. So the incorporation of new technology into industrial labs was definitely delayed. Uh, so many of them uh, waited for a bit until everyone was back into the lab. A lot of academic labs, especially the ones associated to hospitals, were closed. And then we had a big resource issue. And so because of the transportation from China, but also other co countries that plastics, reagents and everything got, got delayed in delivery. So there was a, a, a also a physical issue with actually continuing the work. So yes, I think it had a larger impact than actually I would have thought two and a half years ago when we last spoke. In that time, despite those delays and the impact that it's had on the on the field, what are some of the key developments that you've observed in organoid technology in the last two and a half years? Yeah, so indeed, because of course, and on the other side of things, indeed, we did continues. What we've seen is that the development into different disease areas, the immune oncology model, so the, the combination of organoids with immune cells were the largest developments. And from our side at Hub, we also from the cancer models and cystic fibrosis models that we started with, we have been starting to work on more for us complex diseases such as IBD and, and COPD. Uh, so those, it's basically an, an, an expansion of the organoid field into research areas which we previously thought were, were more difficult because of the complexity uh, have become part of the programs now. So there has been still quite a lot of developments uh, over the last two years. 
Yeah. So interesting you mentioned IBD because, I mean, intestinal organoids are one of the early tissues that kind of really took off in terms of being able to remodel them in this organoid context. And IBD has been this kind of continual mystery in some ways of in terms of what's causing it, this kind of chicken and egg scenario of, and its link with stress and things like that. Are there any particular findings that you've got from those those studies into IBD that you found particularly interesting? Well, yeah, I think, and that is, and so the reason why we why we hesitated initially to go into IBD is exactly what you're saying, that is it the epithelium, the immune system, the fibroblast, so the different parts of the, of the intestinal organ that are involved in it, and without knowing from a, a with a genetic marker or something, which, which uh, tissue part is actually causing it, we felt that making a model system that should represent it was difficult because we would just be guessing. However, when we started making the first organoid models from IBD versus healthy, and I guess this is a, the, the whole point of organoids is that you can grow healthy tissue. IBD, in a way, is genetically relatively healthy. It's not cancer. Uh, so that means that, that that comparison in vitro was basically the first time. And then we found that indeed for a, for a significant percentage, and we expect uh, maybe 30, 40% of it of the patient at least to have an epithelial origin of the disease, or at least a large contribution, we could find phenotypes in expression patterns, cytokine secretion, et cetera. So that initial study, when making those first biobanks, to find differences that were maintained in the organoid culture specific to what we would expect to be IBD, made us think, okay, maybe we should start on this. So from there, we then start to build on. I think there is a lot of work to do in IBD still. So it's not a model that's so obvious as cancer. Uh, we have a RAS mutation treated and that's what it does. But it is much more successful than I thought it would be. And it, has it given you any indication? Can you say yet? Are you leaning any particular way in terms of what might be driving it? Or is that still a, a while off before we can start thinking about conclusions I, there? Yeah, I think that so I'm not sure if we go very different from the conclusions that were already there, that they, these different components all play a part and the interaction is actually what's doing it. But exactly that's what makes it interesting. So as you said, it's, it's, it was an open point. Without a research model, you couldn't look at it. And now because we do have them in a relatively simple model in a dish, I see answers when we look at barrier function that I didn't expect to be that we could actually see it, that we could measure it. And then, of course, comes to and I'm sure we will talk about it later. So uh, we want to make this connection to the clinic. So we, that, uh, we see biological things now and that may make what we expect from the literature. Is it real or not compared to the patient is where we now have to go. Excellent. Well, another thing that I've kind of seen in research papers starting to come up is these things, assembloids. So kind of creating a higher, higher order mimicry of an, instead of just a tissue, which an organoid is mostly focusing on a, an organ. So connecting different organoids, each representing different tissue of an organ together and kind of trying to study them and examine how they interact and behave in different situations. What's your kind of opinion on, on these models and their, their value to, to research and, and how excited do they make you? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very interesting question, and and it is so. It's something that we've been conceptually thinking about. So, what does it mean when we when we make our new modern and more advanced model system, to what we call three D models, for for a long time? And so, from our perspective, our perspective, we we see two two different goals. One is the very original, I think, three D model approach, which is basically really focused on the 3D and the complex model in order to study the biological functions, the biological characteristics of tissue. 
and that is, an, I think, an extension of of the traditional cell lines. Uh, you basically try to understand as a as a sort of a, in a general themes the biology of a system. And the other part, and I think this is where from our organoid part, a patient derived was was our sort of step into this world. The goal there was to mimic a patient in the lab. That's that's what we felt. Whether it's two D, three D, complex or simple, the main point is. I want to see in the lab what we see in the patient. And so there, the, the, the drive to make it more complex is only there if we can mimic something that's in the patient. So there, I think that we have, on the one hand, indeed, uh, combined epithelial organoids with immune system and are now trying to add on other uh, systems to that. Nevertheless, we only want to do this when we can make this correlation, and that links to the IBD question before, to the clinic, can we make a model? Can we get something that, as I just described for IBD? Yes, we see something that if we look at literature and what we expect, looks like IBD. But that's relative, that's a biological answer, biological disease answer, which is interesting and is mechanistically good research. But if I want to make it clinically relevant, I have to see that that whatever I measure now in the lab is actually happening in the clinic. So our expectation of this field is that it is indeed going to be very interesting. However, we do have a bit of a cautionary note. So the, the whole point is that we can mimic patients. Now we can do this more accurately. So make this connection all the time, because if you don't do that, you just have a very complex model that doesn't telling you something about a medical uh, condition. There's almost two paths now in the development of these cultures where you can make them more complex by starting to connect them up and bringing them together and seeing how they interact. And then also you can make them more relevant and still, again, complex, but in making them more representative of patients, deriving them from patient tissues and things like that. So is, is your thought that it would be better to really nail the relevance and the sort of the parity to patient tissues and patient cultures to first and then move on to the kind of developments in linking them together and and trying to make them more complex in that way yeah i think that so in a way it's a combination as an example i'll give you a cancer what we discussed before cancer was the first where we saw clinical relevance so we have an organoid the simple organoid just a 3d structure in a in a, in a traditional dish and then comparing the drug response in the in the lab to the drug response in the clinic. And with this relatively simple system, we see this direct correlation. And, and other people have shown this now as well. So that system, in its simplicity, is sufficient to give an enormously more accurate answer than what we had before. So making that more complex is not necessary. It's expensive. And, it, and if you don't understand it, it's not going to really do anything. Whereas... When we have the immune system now with the new drugs, you will have to add, of course, immune, otherwise you're not going to answer the question. So the way we are looking at it is don't make it more complex than is necessary, or maybe the other side of this, if you make it too complex, make sure that you're still answering the questions because you might introduce all sorts of artifacts. So it's basically a critical way to look at it. it there's no need to make something complex if you, if you already have the answer in the simple system. Okay, fantastic. So, so yeah, it depends what you're studying then and exactly. where you're going to take it. If yeah, you're, you need to yeah. pick your model for, you have a question and that decides on your model. And if, if the question requires you to have the model, consider that you can make the model eh? also. And when I was still in the lab, one of the main things that I learned from my uh, supervisors was that don't try to answer questions for which you don't have any models. That's good advice. <laughs> from drug discovery to regenerative medicine. The tools used for 2D and 3D cell culture are paramount to the success of research. 
brand liquid handling products are the simple, easy and efficient solution to daily lab needs. From specialised products for 3D cell culture, like brand 2-in-1 inserts and the brand plate insert system, or more general lab products such as the Transfer Pet S Pipette and the AccuJet S Pipette controller, you can feel the difference with brand instruments and consumables. Go to brandtech.com or your local dealer for the full line from brand. So focusing in then on a little bit on cancer, how are organoids changing that field of precision medicine in cancer? What are kind of those developments in, in patient-derived organoids that are really changing things there? Yeah, no, well, there's something that came out that we were really happy about a couple of months ago already in Nature Cancer. It was a collaboration that we did with the IRB in, uh, in Spain, the Sanger Institute in the UK, and two companies here, Miris Drug Development Company and Ocello, now Crown where we did our first biobank, so a resource of about 100 colon cancer patients, and used that as a resource to develop a bispecific antibody against that. And that study basically was, uh, was showing that the, the development time for this drug, and now it's in the clinical trial, was tremendously shorter and more accurate because of using organoids, because you could use one, a whole range of patients with different genetic backgrounds and see which organoid, which comp, sorry, which compound is best eh, out of this screen of bispecific antibodies we did. Secondly, we could compare it to healthy tissue to see if there's a therapeutic window. Most of the treatment treatments that were in the screen actually dropped out because of it being just as toxic for yeah. the healthy intestine of the same patient than for the cancer. And then specific mechanisms. So for in this particular case, it was EGFR, uh, signaling uh, that is and very difficult to mimic in colon cancer in in cell lines because they're not sensitive to EGF, for instance. And RAS mutations versus wild type are difficult to mimic. And so with the organoids where we have all of this in it, we could really see that we, we had an extremely fast development line from the first screen all the way to this candidate that then went into trial. To me, that was the edit, so the, yeah, the publication from from, uh, from two months ago was an, it was the example, and I think it was actually highlighted. It was highlighted in the paper in the journal as well, because of describing uh, what we really can do with organoids precision medicine. So, is this something? So, obviously, you're a Netherlands-based company, but the FDA recently released a, a big statement about the use of animal models and trying to massively descale how much they're used. And is are you seeing a, a, a knock-on impact in the? the interest and the use of organoids at this time now, and as particularly you've mentioned there, they've accelerated the drug discovery process and the drug development process. It's now in clinical trials. Now that people no longer or have a, a much more restricted use of animal models in America, are you seeing that drive a lot more interest in, in, your, in your models and organoid models in general? Yeah, I think so. I think that is actually, it, it is actually very good to, to see the FDA that is really on top of this, doing this to push for it. It also shows us as a company that we need to make more work for it. It's said it's, it's difficult to prove all these things and to make sure that we uh, that we can actually develop models for industry that are accurate for it and are accepted by FDA as models for it. But we have a number of companies that have started to help it, support it. So we see that there is a big drive in industry itself. Uh, the animal models, in a way, are not accurate. We we have nothing else, and of course that's why they're used. But everyone knows that they're not very good. We see this drive from industry to, to replace it as well. And I, I really see this collective effort from everyone talking to each other and seeing what can we do, how are we going to build this, and then to, to improve this over the last over the next coming years. So and also the indeed governments that address us, that ask us what to do, 
how can we do it? We just wrote a, a point for the Dutch, a, a memo for the Dutch government on the same item. And how do we do this? How can we implement this? So yes, I think that there is a, it's a start. We're definitely not there yet, but it, there is a big push there. And that actually saying, to come back to your starting question, in the last two years, there has been a, a, a big, at least awareness there that we can maybe now do something because of all the new models or our organized IPS cells. So this whole field has developed tools that have become available now and can actually do this what we couldn't do uh, three years ago. To maybe complete this transition and hopefully get to a, a world where animal models are almost not needed at all, what is left that organoid models need to improve on to get there? What, what do we need to change and improve uh, to get to a position where we're no longer reliant on animal models? Yeah, I think it's just, there's a lot of just simple tests and assay that are currently being done on animals. And we just have to show in organoids that, that it works and is uh, hopefully even better in the use of animals. So in toxicology, there is a, there's a, a lot of experiments that I think we can, if we just put our effort into it, we have to generate the data. So we have to, and this is what we also do with some of our partners, industry partners, we're generating data to show this is what the organoid says, this is what the animal model said, this is what the clinic says. Indeed the organoid model is sufficient. So it's just doing the work uh, to do the comparison. That's one. And the other thing is that, but that goes back to your uh, previous question on assembloids and other things. So there are more models to make. We we don't have everything yet. And then the final thing is that we have to sit down together with FDA and other regulators. What do they accept? What data? We think that we have a lot of data already. Uh, What more do you need? for it to be a relevant data set that is acceptable for the regulators to allow a drug to move forward based on in vitro data and not only on in addition to the animal data. Mm. Fantastic. Well, I think it'll be really interesting to see. And I think in in ways, as you mentioned there with the assembloids, that part of the, the argument for animal models is that because they're a complete living system, if you administer something, a toxicology, if it's going to flag up anything in that living system, it will hit it. Whereas I suppose at the moment, organoids are currently these isolated tissues. So perhaps that's somewhere where that connection and linking up multiple different tissues and organoids together is going to observe how that toxicology of a specific drug could impact a certain cell that you may not may have not considered or might kind of come out of the blue. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly what it is. So, so we basically, in, in certain stages of toxicology, you're putting it in an animal because of the delivery or the, the metabolism of the compound or whatever uh, that you didn't expect. You don't know what the tissue target is. And indeed, in an organoid, you would need to make sure in an in vitro system, you need to make sure that you are addressing all the cells that you think are potentially affected. That being said, of course, when you use an animal, you do need to check all the organs as well and make sure that you found it. But unless it drops dead and it's very evident. Also, and I'm saying this last bit, because it's partly a matter of getting used to it. Because, of course, the animal models are not very accurate either. They're not mm-hmm. a human, and this is why it goes wrong all the time. So at some point, we also have to say, well, when we're looking at, let's say, intestines, and a model that has been very well developed in, in, in an organoid system at the moment, is that not sufficient to do use it already? We know we have all the cell types. We know we have a lot of, yeah, I would say, maybe all of the functional data we can generate from organoids. Do you really need an animal to do that still? So at some point, someone has to make that transition. But yes. Yeah. 
indeed, I think we will be stuck with animals at least for a bit, simply because we we, we see this collective the sort of a collection of tissue plus a collection of cells as something special, and we want to see something unexpected uh, and make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think, and I guess it's just a as you say, people getting used to it. It's a really big frame shift. It's a, it's been no, such an established thing in science for so long, but it is a really good point you make as well. They're not that accurate. I think it's the the stat is it, it's about fourteen percent of drug candidates that pass animal trials actually go on to be successful or get to phase three and pass it. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a very a very good point. Moving on then from the kind of development of organoids and and how their their construction, what are some of the key techniques that researchers can employ to analyze their organoids and get the most information out of them that they can as as a research tool? Yeah, I think that's one of the advantages of organoids and the way we set them up all the way in the beginning is that techniques that we used on cell lines can be used on organoids, basically. So, so that all this, all the standard viability assays, whatever, all Western blood, DNA, RNA analysis is the same. Uh, the amount of material you can generate with organoids is sufficient, especially with new techniques that require much less material maybe than 10 years ago, that there is, I would say, no restriction. On top of that, I think specifically for this field, because of the complexity, that was the whole point. So a lot of new technology has been developed in, in terms of IBD barrier function and assays that, that are being developed. Imaging has obviously improved a lot. So a very interesting paper from another group here in the Netherlands using organoids and T-cells. So showing exactly yeah, that was a CAR T-cell system where in their imaging technology, they could make fantastic analysis of how T-cells actually uh, target cells. Basically, I would say the sky is the limit at the moment almost. It's just a matter of setting it up. But uh, that uh, we have seen almost no limitation as opposed to what we might have thought uh, some years ago. So what are some of those developments then in, in the imaging technology that have allowed people to make those discoveries and really see deeply into these tissues? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I must say that I'm not, I'm, imaging is not my expertise. But what I know is that so... I guess because of the uh, the, the convocals, just the normal imaging system, but then the combination with the IT, I guess that was a major part because uh, making the images is one thing, but the analysis, analysis of the imaging, I, I'm saying this not being an expert, but I've always seen, at least when I was doing it still 10 years ago, that was a disaster, of course, because because of the just uh, computational power that you can put on it. So in this particular paper, for instance, the analysis of how a T-cell attaches itself to an organoid, what happens in time, tracking all the T-cells in a dish, so seeing the different behavior of a different T-cell, that has that basically gave a conceptually, to me at least, a new model almost of, of what we think of an interaction of T-cells with their targets and what part of a population does. So, and you can see that in the imaging, and we could see it in the imaging, I guess the microscope lenses have not changed for the last 300 years, but the way we analyze it and can measure it, that has. And that, I think, led to this paper. So. It is, again, as often, it's a combination of technologies, in this case, uh, biologists with, with imaging, with computational power that allows this, uh, that allowed this, this analysis. And then what, what are some of the current challenges that people experience in working with organoids that may, sort of, may deter researchers from using these models or people might be concerned about? Yeah, I think that is, that's, a, that's, again, another important point and something that we've seen in the past as well. So it is something that we've pointed out before is, is that the technology is more complex maybe than a HeLa cell. In a way, I, I, we, we know uh, from HeLa cells, uh, using that as an example always, but that when we looked in detail over 50 uh, or 100 labs in the world that everyone was using different HeLa cells as well. But for some reason, when we started with organoids, 
the difference and then and the making something standardized turned out to be more difficult and also something maybe more monitored. And when you treat organoids, depending on reagent protocols, et cetera, differently, they will respond differently. And that is a sort of exaggerated more clear in these systems. So the standardization of the reagents, the standardization of protocols in order for two labs to do the same experiment, get the same results is key. And this has to do with education, the sharing of protocols, the sharing of reagents. It also has to do with the industry making the reagents. So we see the major improvements as stem cell technologies that makes the media, uh, many, many more media available now. The, the ECMs that are available, uh, Corning making uh, the, the matrix gels, for instance. So all these companies have developed uh, reagents much more, they're much more available than before. And that is that has been a major improvement. And then finally, for instance, the Human Cancer Models Initiative that we are part of and the, the NCI and the Zenger Institute and some other universities in the US to develop organizer resource. So the ATCC, where I was, uh, I was actually distributing them, is a distributing the organoid made by the partners to make it because the access to the tissue or made organoids is difficult for uh, some academic groups, but also for industry. So Jenna and we have more partners now also that, that do it, that distribute them. And I think that's key. So what we hear a lot is these two things that uh, the standardization related protocols, but also access to organoids, which is uh, difficult still, but hopefully improving, especially with these type of tools. Because you mentioned that that sort of standardization, the reproducibility issue there, obviously it's difficult because, as you say, it's all of the issues that you might have with a halo cell is, is is expanded on when you're working with organoids and it makes it more difficult. But it is kind of encouraging because it's at the early stages of this field and reproducibility is something that is now very clearly in your mind and the mind of other people in the field. It kind of means that that focus on those standardization protocols will be there from the beginning as opposed to trying to retrofit all of these protocols and standardizations or or lack of standardizations that have persisted throughout many, many different techniques and cultures that we've worked with previously throughout kind of scientific history. So it's both obviously a clear challenge, but it's also good that there is this focus on it and that people are working to, to implement it. In terms of the accessibility challenges there, what was some of the advice that you would give to researchers to kind of overcome that accessibility issue? Yeah, I think that's so. The, the one thing that we've tried to support uh, accessibility is indeed by ATC, for instance, mandating them or helping them to set up this biobank that allows you to just, just get organoids uh, and that are characterized. So that is one of the ways I would uh, using good reagents. And indeed, you have an interesting point there. In the same time, maybe as uh, as reproducibility in science coming up in the media very often and everyone paying more attention to it, that's maybe indeed a good timing for us to, to start off with it. But in line with that, then I think that the main thing that we still see from people not succeeding is not following protocols or getting reagents that are just not good. There is a lot of data out there. There are a lot of people that can do it. Get the right collaborators. Don't try to uh, make reagents yourself if you don't know if you don't know how to do that. That's that's very complex. And and so, if you want to standardize something, you basically need to get the reagents or the organoids. Having a, a basic like an organoid that you know from someone else, from which results have already been obtained, so that in your lab you can compare it. And you know that, okay, so lab, the other lab got these results. If I get the same, that is in the basics, and I can start experimenting from there. Because in the end, it is a comparison between groups that tells you whether you have a standardized technology or not. 
And basically, uh, it sounds a little bit of a, we should be maybe a little bit less stubborn and trying to invent the wheel ourselves with technologies that are this complex and just take what's there and then build on that. And then for anyone who might be starting out or considering using Organoids for the first time in their research or incorporating them into their work, what resources would you recommend that are out there for them to have a look at and to use to prepare for using those Organoids? Yeah, I think so that there we have, well, we have academic groups, of course, that is uh, papers and collaborations. But what we've tried to do is us, but also our partners, Stem Cell Tech, for instance, uh, Corning and others. In most of the partners that we have, they have a lot and ourselves a lot of tools available online in the context in supporting these people to start it. So all of these uh, companies have programs specifically aimed getting you introduced and, and getting it off the ground successfully in one go. And it's also one, it's one of the main things we do with, with people is to make sure that it works because it's very, and we've learned that in the past, <laughs> it's very frustrating for people to try it for a long time and then fail. And, and then then you give up and you don't use it again. And that's a pity. It's not necessary. Basically, I would say that these companies that are in it commercially, that's ourselves and these people that I just named, have programs. Of course, academically, there are a lot of leading labs in the world that are very good at it and, and work with them to do it as opposed to indeed to trying it by yourself because it's just too complex for that. I don't think it works. But And I actually like your reference to how we did it in the past because I'm not so sure how standard that was either. Mm. And then if there was one thing that you could ask for that would lead to a wider uptake of organoids in life science research, what would it be? <laughs> if I could snap my fingers and give you something. Yeah, I think that the one thing that we, that we really want to develop still is... Uh, Synthetic matrices. That is, I would almost say, almost a holy grail in the in the field, as far as I'm concerned. We are still stuck with protein matrices derived from uh, cell lines in animal models, and that is a pity. It's the only thing that really works. There's a lot of research being done. I think it's a key point. It is the synthetic ECM. I think is key. Fantastic. Well, Rob, those are all of my questions. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, and um, talk to you again soon. Yeah, maybe an, another two years. Exactly, after the next <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the use of organoids in IBD research, some of the reproducibility issues that are out there but are also being addressed and clearly have a high focus on them, and also the massive impact that this field is starting to have in cancer research and even looking at drug development and new drugs being approved and going through to clinical trials. So if you would like to find out more about organoids and their applications, please check out our infocus on applied organoids over on www.biotechniques.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Feel the difference with brand liquid handling products and consumables. From the ergonomic design to the quality manufacturing, brand products are the simple, easy and efficient solutions to your lab equipment needs. Go to brandtech.com or your local dealer for the full line of brand products.